Chapter Sixteen of Arthur Mervyn. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Arthur Mervyn by Charles Brockton Brown. Chapter Sixteen. The features of one whom I had seen so transiently as Wallace may be imagined to be not easily recognized, especially when those features were tremulous and deathful. Here, however, the differences were too conspicuous to mislead me. I beheld one in whom I could recollect none that bore resemblance. Though ghastly and livid, the traces of intelligence and beauty were undefaced. The life of Wallace was of more value to a feeble individual, but surely the being that was stretched before me and who was hastening to his last breath was precious to thousands. Was he not one in whose place I would willingly have died? The offering was too late. His extremities were already cold. A vapor, noisome and contagious, hovered over him. The flutterings of his pulse had ceased. His existence was about to close amidst convulsion and pangs. I withdrew my gaze from this object and walked to a table. I was nearly unconscious of my movements. My thoughts were occupied with contemplations of the train of horrors and disasters that pursue the race of man. My musings were quickly interrupted by the sight of a small cabinet, the hinges of which were broken and the lid half raised. In the present state of my thoughts, I was prone to suspect the worst. Here were traces of pillage. Some casual or mercenary attendant had not only contributed to hasten the death of the patient, but had rifled his property and fled. This suspicion would, perhaps, have yielded to mature reflections if I had been suffered to reflect. A moment scarcely elapsed when some appearance in the mirror which hung over the table called my attention. It was a human figure. Nothing could be briefer than the glance that I fixed upon this apparition, yet there was room enough for the vague conception to suggest itself that the dying man had started from his bed and was approaching me. This belief was, at the same instant, confuted by the survey of his form and garb. One eye, a scar upon his cheek, a tawny skin, a form grotesquely misproportioned, brawny as Hercules, and habited in livery, composed, as it were, were the parts of one view. To perceive, to fear, and to confront this apparition were blended into one sentiment. I turned towards him with the swiftness of lightning, but my speed was useless to my safety. A blow upon my temple was succeeded by an utter oblivion of thought and of feeling. I sunk upon the floor prostrate and senseless. My insensibility might be mistaken by observers for death, yet some part of this interval was haunted by a fearful dream. I conceived myself lying on the brink of a pit whose bottom the eye could not reach. My hands and legs were fettered so as to disable me from resisting two grim and gigantic figures who stooped to lift me from the earth. Their purpose, methought, was to cast me into this abyss. My terrors were unspeakable, and I struggled with such force that my bonds snapped and I found myself at liberty. At this moment my senses returned, and I opened my eyes. The memory of recent events was, for a time, effaced by my visionary horrors. 
I was conscious of transition from one state of being to another, but my imagination was still filled with images of danger. The bottomless gulf and my gigantic persecutors were still dreaded. I looked up with eagerness. Beside me I discovered three figures whose character or office was explained by a coffin of pine boards which lay upon the floor. One stood with a hammer and nails in his hand, as ready to replace and fasten the lid of the coffin as soon as its burden should be received. I attempted to rise from the floor, but my head was dizzy and my sight confused. Perceiving me revive, one of the men assisted me to regain my feet. The mist and confusion presently vanished so as to allow me to stand unsupported and to move. I once more gazed at my attendants and recognized the three men whom I had met in High Street and whose conversation I have mentioned that I overheard. I looked again upon the coffin. A wavering recollection of the incidents that led me hither and of the stunning blow which I had received occurred to me. I saw into what error appearances had misled these men, and shuddered to reflect by what hairbreadth means I had escaped being buried alive. Before the men had time to interrogate me or to comment upon my situation, one entered the apartment, whose habit and mien tended to encourage me. The stranger was characterized by an aspect full of composure and benignity a face in which the serious lines of age were blended with the ruddiness and smoothness of youth, and a garb that bespoke the religious profession, with whose benevolent doctrines the example of Hadwin had rendered me familiar. On observing me on my feet, he betrayed marks of surprise and satisfaction. He addressed me in a tone of mildness. "'Young man,' said he, "'what is thy condition? Art thou sick?' If thou art, thou must consent to receive the best treatment which the times will afford. These men will convey thee to the hospital at Bush Hill. The mention of that contagious and abhorred receptacle inspired me with some degree of energy. No, said I, I am not sick. A violent blow reduced me to this situation. I shall presently recover strength enough to leave this spot without assistance." He looked at me with an incredulous but compassionate air. I fear thou dost deceive thyself or me. The necessity of going to the hospital is much to be regretted, but on the whole it is best. Perhaps indeed thou hast kindred or friends who will take care of thee? No, said I, neither kindred nor friends. I am a stranger in the city. I do not even know a single being." "'Alas!' returned the stranger with a sigh, "'thy state is sorrowful. "'But how camest thou hither?' continued he, looking around him. "'And whence comest thou?' "'I came from the country. "'I reached the city a few hours ago. "'I was in search of a friend who lived in this house. "'Thy undertaking was strangely hazardous and rash. "'But who is the friend thou seekest? "'Was it he who died in that bed "'and whose corpse has just been removed?' The men now betrayed some impatience, and inquired of the last comer, who they called Mr. Estwick, what they were to do. He turned to me and asked if I were willing to be conducted to the hospital. I assured him that I was free from disease and stood in no need of assistance, adding that my feebleness was owing to a stunning blow received from a ruffian on my temple. 
The marks of this blow were conspicuous, and after some hesitation he dismissed the men, who, lifting the empty coffin on their shoulders, disappeared. He now invited me to descend into the parlor, for, said he, the air of this room is deadly. I feel already as if I should have reason to repent of having entered it. He now inquired into the cause of those appearances which he had witnessed. I explained my situation as clearly and succinctly as I was able. After pondering in silence on my story, "'I see how it is,' said he. "'The person whom thou sawest in the agonies of death was a stranger. He was attended by his servant and a hired nurse. His master's death being certain, the nurse was dispatched by the servant to procure a coffin.' He probably chose that opportunity to rifle his master's trunk that stood upon the table. Thy unseasonable entrance interrupted him, and he designed, by the blow which he gave thee, to secure his retreat before the arrival of a hearse. I know the man, and the apparition thou hast so well described was his. Thou sayest that a friend of thine lived in this house? Thou hast come too late to be of service." the whole family have perished, not one was suffered to escape. This intelligence was fatal to my hopes. It required some efforts to subdue my rising emotions. Compassion not only for Wallace, but for Thetford, his father, his wife, and his child, caused a passionate effusion of tears. I was ashamed of this useless and childlike sensibility, and attempted to apologize to my companion. The sympathy, however, had proved contagious, and the stranger turned away his face to hide his own tears. "'Nay,' said he, in answer to my excuses, "'there is no need to be ashamed of thy emotion. Merely to have known this family, and to have witnessed their deplorable fate, is sufficient to melt the most obdurate heart. I suspect that thou wast united to some one of this family by ties of tenderness, like those which led the unfortunate Maravegli hither. This suggestion was attended, in relation to myself, with some degree of obscurity, but my curiosity was somewhat excited by the name that he had mentioned. I inquired into the character and situation of this person, and particularly respecting his connection with his family. Maravegli, answered he, was the lover of the eldest daughter, and already betrothed to her. The whole family, consisting of helpless females, had placed themselves under his peculiar guardianship. Mary Walpole and her children enjoyed in him a husband and a father. The name of Walpole, to which I was a stranger, suggested doubts which I hastened to communicate. I am in search, said I, not of a female friend, though not devoid of interest in the welfare of Thetford and his family. My principal concern is for a youth by name Wallace. He looked at me with surprise. Thetford, this is not his abode. He changed his habitation some weeks previous to the fever. Those who last dwelt under this roof were an Englishwoman and seven daughters. This detection of my error somewhat consoled me. It was still possible that Wallace was alive and in safety. I eagerly inquired whither Thetford had removed, and whether he had any knowledge of his present condition. They had removed to number blank in Market Street. Concerning their state he knew nothing. His acquaintance with Thetford was imperfect. Whether he had left the city or had remained, he was wholly uninformed. 
it became me to ascertain the truth in these respects. I was preparing to offer my parting thanks to the person by whom I had been so highly benefited, since, as he now informed me, it was by his interposition that I was hindered from being enclosed alive in a coffin. He was dubious of my true condition, and peremptorily commanded the followers of the hearse to desist. A delay of twenty minutes and some medical application would, he believed, determine whether my life was extinguished or suspended. At the end of this time, happily, my senses were recovered. Seeing my intention to depart, he inquired why and whither I was going. Having heard my answer, "'Thy design,' resumed he, "'is highly indiscreet and rash. Nothing will sooner generate this fever than fatigue and anxiety.' thou hast scarcely recovered from the blow so lately received. Instead of being useful to others, this precipitation will only disable thyself. Instead of roaming the streets and inhaling this unwholesome air, thou hadst better betake thyself to bed and try to obtain some sleep. In the morning thou wilt be better qualified to ascertain the fate of thy friend and afford him the relief which he shall want." I could not but admit the reasonableness of these remonstrances, but where should a bed and chamber be sought? It was not likely that a new attempt to procure accommodation at the inns would succeed better than the former. "'Thy state,' replied he, "'is sorrowful. I have no house to which I can lead thee. I divide my chamber and even my bed with another, and my landlady could not be prevailed upon to admit a stranger. What thou wilt do I know not.' This house has no one to defend it. It was purchased and furnished by the last possessor, but the whole family, including mistress, children, and servants, were cut off in a single week. Perhaps no one in America can claim the property. Meanwhile, plunderers are numerous and active. A house thus totally deserted and replenished with valuable furniture will, I fear, become their prey. Tonight nothing can be done towards rendering it secure but staying in it. Art thou willing to remain here till the morrow? Every bed in the house has probably sustained a dead person. It would not be proper, therefore, to lie in any one of them. Perhaps thou mayest find some repose on this carpet. It is at least better than the harder pavement in the open air. This proposal, after some hesitation, I embraced. He was preparing to leave me, promising, if life were spared to him, to return early in the morning. My curiosity respecting the person whose dying agonies I had witnessed prompted me to detain him a few minutes. Ah, said he, this perhaps is the only one of many victims to this pestilence whose loss the remotest generations may have reason to deplore. He was the only descendant of an illustrious house of Venice. He has been devoted from his childhood to the acquisition of knowledge and the practice of virtue. He came hither as an enlightened observer, and after traversing the country, conversing with all the men in it, eminent for their talents or their office, and collecting a fund of observations whose solidity and justice have seldom been paralleled, he embarked three months ago for Europe. Previously to his departure he formed a tender connection with the eldest daughter of this family. The mother and her children had recently arrived from England. So many faultless women, both mentally and personally considered, it was not my fortune to meet with before. 
This youth well deserved to be adopted into this family. He proposed to return with the utmost expedition to his native country, and after the settlement of his affairs to hasten back to America and ratify his contract with Fanny Walpole. The ship in which he embarked had scarcely gone twenty leagues to sea before she was disabled by a storm and obliged to return to port. He posted to New York to gain passage in a packet shortly to sail. Meanwhile this malady prevailed among us. Mary Walpole was hindered by her ignorance of the nature of that evil which assailed us, and the counsel of injudicious friends from taking the due precautions for her safety. She hesitated to fly till flight was rendered impracticable. Her death added to the helplessness and distraction of the family. They were successively seized and destroyed by the same pest. Maravegli was apprised of their danger. He allowed the packet to depart without him, and hastened to rescue the Walpoles from the perils which encompassed them. He arrived in this city time enough to witness the interment of the last survivor. In the same hour he was seized himself by this disease. The catastrophe is known to thee. I will now leave thee to thy repose. Sleep is no less needful to myself than to thee, for this is the second night which has passed without it. Saying this, my companion took his leave. I now enjoyed leisure to review my situation. I experienced no inclination to sleep. I lay down for a moment, but my comfortless sensations and restless contemplations would not permit me to rest. Before I entered this house I was tormented with hunger, but my craving had given place to inquietude and loathing. I paced in thoughtful and anxious mood across the floor of the apartment. I mused upon the incidents related by Estwick, upon the exterminating nature of this pestilence, and on the horrors of which it was productive. I compared the experience of the last hours with those pictures which my imagination had drawn in the retirements of Malverton. I wondered at the contrariety that exists between the scenes of the city and the country, and fostered with more zeal than ever the resolution to avoid those seats of depravity and danger. Concerning my own destiny, however, I entertained no doubt. My new sensations assured me that my stomach had received this corrosive poison. Whether I should die or live was easily decided. The sickness which assiduous attendance and powerful prescriptions might remove would, by negligence and solitude, be rendered fatal. But from whom could I expect medical or friendly treatment? I had indeed a roof over my head. I should not perish in the public way, but what was my ground for hoping to continue under this roof? My sickness being suspected, I should be dragged in a cart to the hospital, where I should indeed die, but not with the consolation of loneliness and silence. Dying groans were the only music, and livid corpses were the only spectacle to which I should there be introduced." Immured in these dreary meditations, the night passed away. The light glancing through the window awakened in my bosom a gleam of cheerfulness. Contrary to my expectations, my feelings were not more distempered, notwithstanding my want of sleep, than on the last evening. This was a token that my state was far from being so desperate as I suspected. It was possible, I thought, that this was the worst indisposition to which I was liable. 
Meanwhile, the coming of Estwick was impatiently expected. The sun arose, and the morning advanced, but he came not. I remembered that he talked of having reason to repent his visit to this house. Perhaps he, likewise, was sick, and this was the cause of his delay. This man's kindness had even my love. If I had known the way to his dwelling, I should have hastened thither to inquire into his condition, and to perform for him every office that humanity might enjoin. But he had not afforded me any information on that head. End of chapter 16